At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Planning an international trip and want to learn the language of your destination? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today well this is it danny the 2020 nba season four months after we thought it would be is finally in the books the la lakers are champions lebron james is a four-time champion anthony davis is a one-time champion there were zero reported cases the final tally for COVID 19 in the bubble but i guess we should start because that's what this podcast is at least talking some about the game and how it happened with the lakers completely destroying the miami heat leading by 29 after three quarters second largest lead at halftime in nba finals history yeah it was an absolutely dominant performance from the lakers on both ends i focused more in the early going on their defense i thought that in particular anthony davis was absolutely destructive and it was miami struggling to to get shots in the restricted area struggling to make shots in the restricted area turning the ball over a lot the lakers won the possession game in the competitive portion of the game on both in both offensive rebounds and turnovers they had a big advantage in both of those and so to me that help especially the turnovers help fuel the Lakers transition offense which has been such an important part of their success this entire season yeah you you mentioned Davis how many two-on-ones did Anthony Davis foil in this game with heat players turning the corner the strategy was that they're going to run those guys off the line force them to drive and whether it was Jimmy Butler or Tyler Hero or Duncan Robinson sometimes or Kendrick Nunn who may not be able to show his face in Chicago when he and Anthony Davis go back there considering how Davis completely completely owned him at the rim in this series and the adjustment was made by the Lakers to put Anthony Davis at center they started Alex Caruso rather than Dwight Howard you had been calling for Howard not to start you were absolutely correct in that as it turned out and so Davis was guarding Adebayo now there were so many two-on-ones with Adebayo as one of the guys is a great finisher but Davis just stymied them time and time again and then the Lakers for their part start 14 of 15 in the restricted area themselves many of of those with that transition game but I really thought that this came back to Anthony Davis being unbelievable defensively that's what all of this stemmed from for the Lakers right and the reason the Lakers exceeded my expectations in the regular season was their defense they you know per cleaning the glass in the regular season the Lakers were third in defense that filters out garbage time I thought that LeBron 
had a much better concerted effort on that end this regular season compared to last year. Davis was a game changer for them. Also, their big men worked out. I mean, Dwight Howard only played one minute in this game, but he has been an important part of their success overall. And yeah, the Lakers really stymied the heat, and then that has allowed them to to run more. One of those stats that I really like, again, from Cleaning the Glass, is that the Lakers were only in the half court for about 70%, sorry, 80% of their possessions in this game. That was 90 for Miami. And when you consider how vicious the Lakers half court defense was that's a huge advantage because you're getting you're getting better looks you don't have to grind down and then you get into those valuable feedback loops where getting stops helps you get out and transition and getting getting better looks means that you're going to be defending in the half court more often a common tweet was wow the heat really did leave it all out there in game five and jimmy butler was not the same player despite playing 45 minutes and the heat getting it within 13 at the end well and and one of the key indicators there was there were a couple possessions where i I think that was at the end of the first quarter might have been in the second where the heat were trying to give jimmy butler a less challenging defensive assignment so he was on Rajon Rondo and Rondo just blew past him twice in about four possessions for layups it's just like oh this wasn't happening earlier in the series yeah and Bam Adebayo clearly he was out there but not even close to the player that he was in the earlier rounds and certainly the greatness of Anthony Davis had a lot to do with that and let's not forget Anthony Davis had his own injury problems we didn't know how healthy he was going to be coming into this game and whatever treatment they did for him was fantastic because he came out looking like exactly himself early on and Adebayo I mean had maybe the worst half of basketball that I've seen for him I mean just how many times did he get his hands on balls in the paint on the offensive end and just either lose it or not go up at all or miss or turn it over I mean it it was absolutely miserable and uh, Goran Dragic did play heroically and he was able to give Butler a little bit of a rest early on but you know the game wasn't even close enough to see whether he would be able to give them much of anything uh, or not I actually thought he looked decent enough uh, but he also gave a place for the Lakers to attack on defense and it was uh I mean the loss of those two guys I think if those two guys had been healthy this does go seven I think the Lakers still would have won it but in the end despite the brilliance of Butler at times he just wasn't able to sustain it on a night-to-night basis in this series the same way that LeBron James and largely Anthony Davis were able to as well and as we suspected after game five and we had this conversation late in the podcast then about you know who is playing better and we kind of ended up kind of agreeing to disagree where I was saying the Heat were playing better, but that it wasn't sustainable. And we saw the Lakers support players have much better performances. To me, that starts with Rondo. In the first half, he had 13 points in 14 minutes, six to six from the field. A lot of that around the basket, including those blow-bys on Jimmy Butler, also drilled a three when the Heat blew a coverage, had a couple of nice rebounds, had a couple of assists. And Rondo being, being back, KCP had a couple of nice moments. And also, you know, just having Caruso in the starting five, not having Dwight Howard on the floor nearly as much. I thought that the Lake, you know, the Lakers had more, they had more juice on both ends of the floor and the supporting players really did make a difference, though obviously LeBron and AD were phenomenal. Yeah, Rondo, I mean, his finishing was outstanding, but you, you saw that not only did the Heat not have it on the offensive end, but they were getting out hustled, which rarely happens to this team. Uh, in particular, some of it was fast breaks, but some of it was just not being being as locked in from a health perspective it looked like game two around the rim for the Lakers uh, where the Heat had really done a pretty good 
job in game three and four of forcing the Lakers to kick the ball out for three-pointers Well, they only had to take 13 threes where they'd been up in the high 30s and 40s over the course of the game in the Heat's best defensive performances. Only 13 threes that they had to take in the first half and I think they only made two or three of those but that didn't matter because they were getting so much at the rim. But even, even in the first half, it was really, I thought, the defense. And I mean, the, the biggest stat from that was 8 of 22 shooting in the paint for the Heat. I mean, that was the the absolute killer. I mean, they were getting what, in theory, your offense is designed to create, which is coming downhill, a, a ball handler going to the basket. And they were, that was, it, that situation was advantage Lakers uh, when Anthony Davis was in there. Uh, anything yeah. else you wanted to say about the game itself? Well, uh, another challenging performance for Tyler Hero. Definitely had some incredibly bright moments in the bubble, and I think he has a very bright future. But his enthusiasm taking challenging shots, it looks amazing when those shots go in, but he really did struggle, had some had some brutal misses. This one also had some that went in and out, so some some of those that were closer. The, but, the one he took with 13 on the shot clock from the left corner, like that was like a one on the shot clock type of shot. Yeah, it, it really was, and Hero ended uh, 3 of 10 from the field, 1 of 2 from 3, didn't get to the free throw line at all. The Heat actually had more free throw attempts in the competitive portion and in the non-competitive portion of the, of the game than the Lakers, though you know that that was partially because the Lakers were getting so much around the basket that wasn't involving a foul and they also had a bunch of and ones I'll say that so this is kind of bridges the gap between this game and the series um I have zero qualms whatsoever with you know LeBron James winning the MVP it is what I expected basically the rounding up a little bit his averages well I'll do the I'll do the actual ones 29.8 points 11.8 rebounds 8.5 assists in a six-game series, really, at 8.5 assists, he's only a few away from averaging a triple-double, not that that's a, a huge difference. And LeBron, the orchestrator for their offense, he had so much on his plate. I mean, that's why Rondo's ascendance was was also so important, was that they having somebody else was really beneficial. And though I, I was reminded at moments during this game that if I had a vote, and I you know, if, if it's just straight, who was more important to the Lakers' success in this series— I would have voted for Anthony Davis because I thought that he was the straw that stirred the drink defensively. And we saw that value in some ways demonstrated most clearly by his absence. Like there were in a few, both when he was injured in parts of game five, but also just kind of throughout the series when AD wasn't in there and when AD wasn't right, the Lakers defense wasn't the same. And I thought that that was, that was so important overall for the series. Have they come out with the MVP yet? Are we still waiting on that? No, LeBron won it. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean that's he he got he got all eleven first place votes. Would you have given it to Davis though? Absolutely. Yeah, it's I, close. I'm, like I mean, I'm I'm not saying it was like a no brainer or something like that. And all I said of LeBron stats, so I'll say ADs too. Twenty five points, ten point seven rebounds, three point two assists. That doesn't matter. Two blocks, a steal, and a, basically a steal and a half. But yeah, I mean, just shutting off the rim. The, the I mean, you could see I'm going like the the nice little bookends in the series of Game One and Game Six. Remember Game One like this was one of our big takeaways was how spooked Miami was by Anthony Davis like Goran Dragic was pulling some of those shots early before he got hurt Butler was affected by a bunch of those shots at the rim so he really had those performances and then you think about how Davis swung you know like how that was huge in game four to to put him on on Jimmy Butler and then Butler had the additional counters like I, I thought that LeBron was excellent no a, a totally a totally fine pick but I, th- I just thought Davis was he was very good offensively 
not not like as as amazing as LeBron, especially when you take into account the distribution and the attention and everything like that. But he was so valuable defensively. Yeah, and I mean offensively, he basically like single handedly ruined the Heat playing zone. Yeah, that's true. Well. He, he got the got them out of that. So yeah, I understand why LeBron won it, and I mean. I would say this is pretty much the closest finals MVP in my personal opinion that I can ever remember as, as far as trying to figure it out. I mean, they both would have been absolutely deserving MVPs. Uh, and I mean, so, you know, James was 13 out of 20 in this game. He was 15 to 21 in game five. I mean, it was really just a, an unbelievable postseason for him too. But, uh, and as really the only guy other than Rondo on occasion who was running the Lakers offense, I mean, that he was just as indispensable for them offensively as Davis was defensively but I guess if you looked at it if you if I said hey if they replaced LeBron in this series with another high level perimeter star like let's say it was like Luka Doncic or something like that like LeBron's contributions in this series to me as crazy as it is to say could more easily have been replaced than Davis's contributions now that's not necessarily what makes an MVP but as as we're talking about it the defense that he played in some of these games i mean game one game four and game six I mean, it was just ridiculous defensive effort from him in a way that i don't know that there's anyone else in the league who well and to done. be able to not only do that defensively but then bring the impact that he did offensively sometimes that was facing the four the offensive rebounds not having to give up anything and i mean i think you saw some of that in when the lakers were playing with two bigs it's just like they didn't have anything for the other guy to do because davis was doing it all so I'll, I'll give you the choice do so there there are kind of two different lakers -y threads here one is some of the legacy talk the other one is to kind of hit some of the points of this remarkable Lakers season which one do you want to do first yeah I think we should talk about the season and let's not forget at the beginning of the year I mean there are people like all right you know the Lakers are gonna be like a four seed a five seed a six seed you know what was their over under like 52 or something here let's look it up actually it was 50 and I went under. Yeah, and they're on pace for for 63. But I mean, people were like, hey, this team has no ball handling at all. And I think where people missed, even even me, uh, who I, I thought, I think I picked them to win like 53 games or something. Um, I mean, it missed in a couple of ways. Number one, just the level of buy-in defensively that the Lakers had. And Zach Lowe wrote a great article about this, that LeBron was in on defense from the very beginning. Davis was awesome. Playing the two bigs together you know, during the regular season and that really worked to shore up their defense as well and the effort level they were to bring on a night-to-night -night basis now who knows if this Lakers team wins it in a normal season maybe they would have run out of gas but clearly LeBron having all that time off he made great use of it and did the same for the time off uh, during the hiatus and you know he had the most resources of anyone in the league as far as like you know places that he could have worked out and people that he has who works with them and that kind of thing um and clearly lebron with his experience uh was able to lead this team in a way that certain other teams their biggest competition the bucks uh, and clippers they wilted uh, uh in the bubble and everyone had many reasons for doing that that's not to like cast aspersions on them but uh clearly from a purely basketball standpoint the lakers i, I think had a mental edge 
and due to the experience of LeBron and uh it was really just a, an awesome year for them and Anthony Davis certainly validated those who, who said no this guy is a top five level of player despite the fact that he hasn't been able to drive winning in New Orleans other than that one year when they made it to the second round and, and looked pretty good before they lost to the Warriors I mean remember that there was an ex- I mean when Ty Lue basically they they didn't agree on money Ty Lue turned them down Vogel gets the job and they hired Jason Kidd as a top assistant Kittlefinger thought that that was going to be a big thing nope not at all it doesn't seem it doesn't seem like there was any drama there and then the I mean one of the other big you know forces of this season it's kind of hard to to put it into some sort of box is the passing of Kobe Bryant I mean the one of the most indelible moments of this NBA season and to have it be that franchise that win that wins the championship that come in such a such a crazy season I mean it, it it it's it's a lot and I know that organizationally like and it's and it's he still had a big he still had a big voice in those in those hallways and the and the fan base of course you know beloved player recently retired i was there for his jersey retirement all that and to to have i mean it feels like a lifetime ago but to have that as as a part of this season as well i'm sure that gives extra meaning for the players for the organization and of course for the fan base how do you feel this lakers team now having we we have their season fully in the ledger now how do you rank them as a championship team I mean, they had a pretty dominant run here, although it, it was an easier pass, at least in terms of the regular season wins of the teams that they faced. They never faced higher than a three seed at any point in these playoffs. But clearly, this Heat team, I think, was really good. Like that was—that's uh, by the end. And, yeah, like uh, maybe, if you, maybe if you, we'll the, see, the team quality. Yeah. If you were to look more at how they were playing at the time. Yeah. Now, if you look at, uh, we'll see how this Heat team does next year too, right? If this team in a normal NBA season wins forty-five games next year and loses loses in the first round then you know maybe there's an indication that uh they did kind of catch lightning in a bottle here a little bit but the lakers definitely beat the teams in front of them they dispatched houston who had two all nba players on it in five extremely easy games uh certainly all three of the teams that they beat who had given other teams a lot of trouble in that west finals were uh, or, or in that western playoff run you know they had no problem with any of those teams basically you know the denver series maybe could have been a little closer if things had broken down differently and then in this series too they had a 3-1 lead in the end so how do you feel that this team stacks up with you know some of the other champions over the last decade say it's a different construction and I do think that matters I mean LeBron and Davis two incredible talents and James still being this incredible player at 35 turning 36 in a matter of months is incredible but to me they're not in the same the same conversation as some of the best like let's say warriors teams because those those ones they had more depth and i think that you know they it was it was a different construction and i mean the lakers didn't need their third through eighth guys to do as much as a lot of other teams but those guys also couldn't do as much and so if you're theoretically playing out a seven game series and and everything else like yeah good luck stopping lebron and ad and they're they're better than I, w- I would say a lot of champions but it's but in the like kind of of these modern especially in the super team kind of era I'm 
I think they're very good and they're, you know, a totally deserving champion and any, I don't, I don't want to hear any asterisk talk, but like, let's say, let's put it this way. I mean, while they were exceedingly dominant, they had a plus, and this is including the glass garbage time filter, a plus 8.7 net rating when LeBron was on the floor. They were also the third, sorry, the fifth best team in the NBA in terms of net rating during the regular season. They were third in defense, 11th in offense. And I don't think that's completely like I don't think that's completely ridiculous they were they were a great team they did have some some moments but I don't think of them as like that upper echelon champion yeah it's tough to say because I think Toronto last year the two Warriors teams in 2016 Cleveland you know I think they're probably pretty similar to 2016 Cleveland uh you know 2015 Warriors maybe somewhat similar to them um but yeah I think the last three champions in particular you know maybe 2015 Warriors it's it's a tough call like where that team really ranks I mean the fact that they did as well as they did again the next year is a feather in their cap but this team does have two pretty big weaknesses which is half court offense and shooting but they also their strengths are just so strong and they have these two top five players i think you could say that this is to me right up there with steph curry and kevin durant among the best duos of the last 10 years uh it's particularly the way that they've been playing in these playoffs i mean they, they probably had the two best players in the playoffs on one team would you agree with that I I would and also LeBron offensively works so well with Davis and that he can get Davis the ball in the right place to succeed and then defensively Davis helps cure a lot of uh, you know not that the Lakers had a lot of misgivings but he helps cure a lot of that and so I thought they you know we that was something that you and I talked about a lot that going back to when the trade happened was that I thought that it could be very good for both of them and it was and I didn't see what Davis has been offensively shooting the ball in particular during these playoffs I didn't see that even part of it coming it was more just that Davis is maybe the best transition finisher in the entire league and all the other talents that he has and yeah I would argue thinking about it right now like there could be some more digging and there are certainly other other worthy candidates but when you consider especially how thoroughly they made their way through the playoffs that they were the two best players overall so I think we should talk now about the legacies and what this does for uh, these players I think in our perspective of them. I actually want to start with Rajon Rondo, who you and I had talked about as being one of the worst defensive players in the NBA the last couple of years. And during the regular season, that was the case. But Rondo, again, adds to his legacy. This actually, I think, could be somewhat important for him eventually making the Hall of Fame. Maybe he would have just made it anyway, because for whatever reason, insiders just seem to love him in a way that I think is not necessarily warranted. Even love what he was doing with the Celtics, where, to be honest, he really only had four super high-level years with the Celtics but I could see him getting in now in part because of this uh, reinventing himself as a bench player and he deserves a ton of credit for what he's been able to do with his three-point shot even like the finishing that he showed at times in this series where he really just was not willing to try those type of plays and going back to the second round as well where his defense was pretty important and you know he his addition to the series really changed the series uh going against the Rockets so uh clearly Rondo has reestablished himself as a solid NBA player and yeah he may not do that much in the regular season next year but as a solid backup option who can contribute to a high level playoff team and he clearly showed that he still is that when many including I would say both of us really worried particularly at the start of the year that he was going to be an Achilles 
Achilles heel for this team and the exact opposite was the case absolutely Rondo 34 turning 35 in February where where his career goes from here will be interesting also while the leg I, I enjoy the legacy stock it also could be big for him financially Rondo has a player option and whether I mean we'll see what he wants I mean we could theoretically go back to the Lakers he's he'll have they'll have early bird rights that should be sufficient maybe another team wants to give Rondo a role that he's more happy with but I mean it seems like the Lakers have something have have something pretty good with him going so I think he'll come back um we can we can go from there though to to LeBron James the finals MVP the four-time finals MVP and I suspect and and you're far more of an NBA historian than I am and obviously there are other people who who can who can opine on this what my thought on this is I'm sure there were people not that I was in this camp who were holding off on saying that LeBron was clearly one of the top two players of all time and there are various I mean to me that's been true since like 2013 right but I'm sure there are people and I I thought this was undeniable before but now I think that we'll probably see even the most ardent holdouts say okay you know like yeah sure there are going to be I mean LeBron versus MJ is a is a conversation for another day and it's probably a conversation that I don't need to be as heavily involved in as somebody who didn't watch Michael Jordan play you know in the same way that I have LeBron but being the best player on four champions in three different organizations and when you also consider the finals runs and you consider that yes LeBron's teams have lost a bunch of times in the finals but they've almost always lost to a superior team that I think it it, it puts his leg it puts they've, his uh, I'll 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 say they've always lost to a superior well 2011 is the is the one that oh yes I'm sorry thank you yeah yeah, that, 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 yeah that's the one that that people can point to but yeah I mean that's uh that's pretty far in the rearview mirror with this one right I mean absolutely uh, I mean yeah. that was almost a decade ago <laughs> isn't that incredible and and yeah, it so really I mean is. LeBron, that is that is something truly special. And to 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 be the the standard bearer, and I mean to basically he's now done that four times because you could he was that for the Cavs before he left the first time. They just didn't win a championship. They made a finals, and that was incredible in its own right. You and I disagree a little bit on his supporting talent that year, but it, it is it is a truly incredible resume and the amount of playoff success that he has had. But I put a lot more championship weight like there are these discussions about Robert Ory and various other players I put so much more weight on championships when you either added or nearly added when you were the best player when you were the the reason that your team was there the primary reason and LeBron has been that guy every damn time a few other things that I can add to that in terms of just a well no I guess this is actually the next decade now but he, he already had had this title of the best one decade of basketball play i think he had already reached that uh for the the decade of the 2010s and but now to do it in three different decades he also is probably the only player other than jordan to be the best player in the nba at age 35 now kareem did win a finals mvp at 38 but if you were you know probably 1980 was the last time that he would have been considered the best player in the nba and then it it was dr j mo 
Moses, Larry Bird were probably considered the best players in the NBA, you know, going up through the early 80s. Well, and and something Uh, something to chime in there. It is not unlike the Lakers' path to the finals where they might not have faced the strongest opposition. LeBron's facing some pretty damn strong opposition for that champion for that title a best pl- best player going right now yeah that's true and you know i would when we did our top 10 players in the nba i had Kawhi. Kawhi completely fizzled Giannis completely fizzled i think we had both of those guys ahead of him we didn't know what he would look like in the playoffs and he was as good as ever and it's really just remarkable that i mean he is close to the most athletic player on the court in the nba finals still even now at age 35 which is absolutely remarkable so for me I, i'm probably going to talk about this with hollinger he just did a column on it but it's neck and neck right now between him and jordan like i i'm i'm not sure that i wouldn't pick lebron james anymore which uh you know to just get one more run and hey he's not done yet either you know they're gonna be right back in the mix again next year as we will talk about it in the coming days uh anthony davis this is great to see that you know i mean he was already on path to being a hall of famer and if you look now he had played so few minutes in the playoffs he's only had played three series in his entire career coming into today or or coming into this year and but his overall statistics in the playoffs i mean i I think he has maybe the best playoff per ever right now are pretty close to like a 30 per or something in the playoffs and ridiculous true shooting and we've seen that he was able to i think if you're going to say who is the best playoff defensive player in the nba right now that is probably anthony davis until further notice you know Giannis was the deserving defensive player of the year but he didn't have anywhere near this type of this type of an impact that anthony davis had uh on this miami heat offense for example i I think this is an amazing stat anthony davis played more playoff minutes this year than the entire rest of his career combined i mean he might come close to doubling it uh not not quite because of that second round series a couple years ago Uh, uh, yeah but he's yeah because his series had been short he had a four gamer a four gamer and a five gamer yeah before but these ones were short too 13 games yeah that's that's true yeah he played 13 games before this year and then he played 21 games uh this year so well, and, and so I brought up the idea and I, part of the reason I was catching it in terms of with LeBron of for me, championships added and all of that, it matters so much more when you're the best player or at least you're in the conversation. And Anthony Davis, yeah, I think he was one of the top two players in the playoffs this year. So even though LeBron won finals MVP and I'm fine with that, even though I would have picked Davis, this is a huge plus on his resume to be a definitive player on a champion and to to close the door as well as they did and doing a lot of it through his defense that a lot of players don't have and it's it's different you know i I don't i don't know that i'm gonna think about the ad this this year's run the same way that i'll think about kevin durant because that was all really complicated with those with the warriors on those teams but i i love that he has this and there was i was thinking during this game i actually thought of this originally when they went up 3-1 about how years ago i i lamented this possibility that kevin durant like that we're gonna have this long conversation about whether he's the best like wouldn't it be a conversation if he is he the best player that ever that didn't win a title had he not you know gone or if the thunder hadn't won and now davis avoids that conversation too and he avoids that conversation with a virtuoso playoff performance and now davis is on the path with three four five more years at this type of level even if he doesn't win a championship he's on the path to being a top 20 player of all time to be up there with dirk Nowitzki and kevin garnett and carl malone and ahead of someone like charles barkley you know just with his career kind of playing out normally but with this you know being maybe potentially the finals mvp 
uh even you know playing at that type of a level he definitely played at a finals mvp type of level even if he didn't win the finals mvp so that that's something important as well and danny green now how many championships is that for him i think he's the first player ever to start on back-to-back champions that were two different teams and so he's now won three i guess he's won three with three different organizations yeah that's a a great point and dwight howard to me this doesn't well maybe it changes things a little bit for him because you know yes he was kind of once he left houston he was pretty much done as an all-star level player he was done as an all-star level player but at least potentially this can wash the bad taste out of people's mouths of him just being like a cancer you know so it's like yes this doesn't count as like oh yeah there's another all nba level of season but at least it's like this can counteract that aspect of his story that has been the case for the last three four years or so so anything else you want to talk about here with this uh this lakers team or should we move on to talking about our thoughts on the season as a whole here as we wrap up this uh longest season in uh in nba history <laughs> yeah it was it was kind of funny going back through fortunately a number of outlets did kind of season recaps pre-hiatus because there we didn't know how long the gap was going to be and so he was like hey, let's let's recall what we had and um i mean we already brought up kobe bryant's passing and this was a year remember the uncertainty with kind of not only who the best player in the league was but the rising and everything like that and so we saw some definitive performances from from luka Doncic. I was, I was thinking back, one of the in memorable moments of the season for me was when Dallas ended Milwaukee's 18-game winning streak. That was a Porzingis-led performance, um, from what I recall. But it was, that was, you know, and, and Giannis went 48-14, and 14, but the Bucks still lost. And I mean, it's also funny because Milwaukee had this absolutely insane regular season, but they actually didn't have that many super memorable moments because they were just beating the ever-loving crap out of everybody. Yeah, for me... I remember more the Bucks losing. I mean, that's what, to me, is what I'll remember from this season about them. And and it remains to be seen, of course, what the ultimate fate of Giannis Antetokounmpo will be. I mean, you imagine he's going to be a Buck next season, but if he ends up leaving and this is their best chance and they couldn't get it done. Of course, I'll also remember from the Milwaukee Bucks, their strike to lead to that postponement of gains for social justice in the bubble. We ended up having a delay there and, and the finals ended up finishing a couple days later than they were supposed to uh, because of that and you know that was just George Hill just started it all as the reporting indicated later and he and Sterling Braun and then everyone else backed them up and it ended up that all the other players couldn't play either uh, or chose not to play I, I should say but it, they felt like they really needed to after the Bucks decided not to do that you know with the shooting of Jacob Blake and the fact that that occurred in Kenosha near Milwaukee so that's that's something i'm always going to remember as well and just the the thought that everyone might just stop playing at at that point i mean that was very real and all of those meetings and all of that reporting i mean it's just so much stuff has happened it's unbelievable that's probably why we're doing this to just go back and try to remember it all here but i mean that's that's what i'll remember most about the milwaukee bucks rather than uh that dominant regular season which for a time although Giannis ended up getting hurt towards the end was one of the most dominant regular seasons we've seen people were talking about potentially 70 wins for them yeah absolutely and there were also i mean if you want to kind of go into some of the some of the moments zion in his debut having 17 straight points 17 straight points for the pelicans not 17 straight points overall hitting those four threes against the spurs that incredible fourth quarter 
I was actually, I, w- I was at um, Chase Center as a fan for that game. So that was because if I had been in the media seats, then I actually would have been watching it the whole time. But so going back and, and that was a, a really incredible performance. Well, well, and not only that, but I mean, the fact that as it would augur his future health issues and the, what happened in the bubble where he just wasn't able to finish it out and the Pels ended up losing that game. True. <laughs> right? Like, I mean, the incredible brilliance, but yet also the limitations on him and that'll obviously be something to hopefully that is not an allegory for his entire career let's hope not there was also that really fun zion luca overtime game a little oh yeah and did did that one for the nba cast mm-hmm. uh, maxi kleba uh, guarding guarding zion is the maxi kleba coming out party uh, the Celtics having absolute classics against the Clippers and the Lakers. I mean, including some of Jason Tatum's just absolute explosion in the second half of this season. Yeah, yeah, his his taking the step to becoming a legitimate All NBA player in January and February with the those threes uh, that and just shooting like fifty percent from three over that month and a half. I, I'll remember that. John Morant's attempted dunks, including when he nearly murdered Kevin Love. <laughs> Yeah, I went back through all of our topics that we did for the pod over the years as I was thinking about this. And yeah, I mean, we said John Moran is the most exciting rookie since, gosh, I mean, you know, at least in 10 years, if not more. And that was before Zion had returned as well. But I still think John is a more exciting rookie than Zion. But yeah, he and Jaron Jackson, you know, really looking forward to a, a bright future in Memphis. And hopefully they'll be a perennial playoff team going forward. Maybe not next year, but they've got plenty of time for those guys. Uh, to mature a, a couple of crazy moment in time games and uh zach levine hitting 13 threes in that game against the hornets which was also a crazy chicago comeback the raptors 30 point comeback against the mavericks another one just like yeah inc- the inc- press yeah, I mean that's that's another thing we got to remember, right? Is just this is the uh, the year of the zone defense making its return. Yeah, and it playing a big part in the playoffs as well. Of course, I mean going back to the the two the two three in the Eastern Conference Finals, all of the different the box and one in the second round. Like it has been a really amazing year for that. And I mean Miami, they're they're not they're far from the only team, but I mean we saw some real success with the zone. Yeah, and that series overall, which now because the Celtics didn't make it to the finals, is I think we've kind of forgotten about a little bit in the second round was a wonderful series between Boston and Toronto maybe the most interesting coaching series although I thought this this series was really good for coaching too that we just finished uh but hey you mentioned the box at one the OG Ananobi shot after Kemba Walker set up Tice for a dunk with 0.5 remaining and that game six double overtime game that was so ridiculous like that was one of the best I mean maybe the best NBA game we've seen since 2016 so definitely will remember that series as well. Well, and then following up from that game seven with the next game in the Eastern Conference playoffs being yeah. Bam blocking Jason Tatum at the rim. It was, I mean, that sequence of games was truly incredible. Other great playoff stuff too. The Jazz Nuggets series that has oh, to be talked about. Amazing. With, I mean, more 50-point games in one series than had ever occurred in one entire playoffs before that. Four 50-point games in one series with Donovan Mitchell and Jamal Murray. 
Murray. And I think we've kind of forgotten about that now, but it's not like in the end, bubble ball was just so ridiculous. Like the overall three point shooting percentages, like weren't that much higher or anything. Like, you know, this, this, these last few series here, you know, it's not like those were like not NBA basketball in the way that that, that series was just like so batshit insane. And I think we'll just need to remember that as not an artifact of the bubble necessarily. It was just an unbelievable, completely ridiculous series. And may, maybe that was still more kind of seeing games, craziness. You know, I think things settled down. Well, and a, and a Styles makes fights thing where both of those teams had yeah. elements that the other team just couldn't really handle early on. I mean, I mean, Denver solidifying their defense was was a huge dynamic that continued on to their incredibly memorable second round series where they outlasted the Clippers, came back from 3-1 a second time, and were, were excellent in the second half of that series. Jokic's defense was way better. They got more from Michael Porter Jr. Of course, Jamal Murray had his moments as well. And remembering that Gary Harris... You know, kind of, he wasn't didn't always have as many moments in the Clippers series, but he was gargantuan late in the in the in the Jazz series. He can't came back, and we didn't even know if he was going to play. And he had some big defensive performances. And the fact that they did it all without Will Barton, like I mean, the the Nuggets walk away. Like if you think about teams that change their perception the most from when the playoffs started. I mean, Miami's probably the clear number one considering what they did, but Denver, truly incredible story as well. Yeah, although I do think that Miami was less of a fluke than Denver over. I mean, Denver got outscored despite making the conference finals. And yeah, I mean, Nikola Jokic obviously was unbelievable. I mean, just the image though of that game seven with Torrey Craig missing the layup. They threw it ahead. Mike Conley with a three that just rimmed out that could have won the game. And like Donovan Mitchell just collapsed in agony after that after Gary Harris had knocked it away from him from behind and just the utter insanity of that sequence the Clippers disappointment and Doc Rivers eventually getting fired and Paul George's three-pointer hitting the side of the backboard and Way doing that P. game for the NBA cast as we just you know we're like oh they're gonna come back they're gonna they're gonna get desperate here they're gonna go to their best lap and just as the evidence just mounted and mounted and mounted and we're like not only are they not even are they not gonna come back and win this but like this game is about to be a fucking blowout and they're about to lose 3-1 uh, or, or lose their 3-1 lead again just like in 2015 I mean that was that was really I, I'll, I'll and who knows what will become of the Clippers now whether that's a, a bump in the road or whether we'll look back on that as this team was they paid all this uh treasure to put these guys Leonard and George together and it lasted for two seasons or maybe even less than that well and that's what I, another element of the bubble that I think is so fascinating is we're having trouble in the moment separating the signal from the noise, but there's also a huge element of that as these things move forward. You know, Giannis with the Bucks, the Clippers guys together. Which of these young rising teams does this become? You know, a, a, st- a stepping stone into the, in their future story, and which of them is it just an aberration? And con- I mean, the future will provide context, and that's just the the way this thing always works out, and things seem more inevitable than they are at the time. And you know, the right like whether. Dallas, you know, whether they take a step, whether, you know, Portland's play in the bubble, the bubble Suns 
You know, whether that is Portend's future success or it's just like this weird, weird anomalous story of a really delightful team that won eight games and still didn't make the play in. Uh, So there's a lot, like a lot of really interesting kind of dynamics that we don't, we don't know the full contours yet. And we probably won't for another couple of years in certain cases. Yeah. Some of those indelible bubble memories of Devin Booker hitting that shot over Kawhi Leonard to win that game for Phoenix. And then the craziness at the end, the first ever play-in as well, which was also an awesome game, by the way. Dame Lillard getting Portland into position with one of the best runs that we've ever seen and continued that for game one against the Lakers and then got completely shut down after that. Uh, But yeah, like his 60-point game against the Mavericks, by the way, was ridiculous. Speaking of the Mavericks, Luka Doncic arriving and playing at uh, a superstar level in the bubble as well and playing maybe the best series ever by a 20 year old and that ridiculous game four that he had including the step back to win it well, and, against the clippers and remembering how that eventually. series started you know the absolute disaster and carlisle pulls luca and they come back in that game yeah chris saps Porzingis, maybe they win that series if it weren't for him uh getting injured rudy gobert a- any I other mean, like bubble memories for you well i think uh, rudy gobert kind of bridges it because scoring the first points but, in the bubble yeah and being such a huge part in that first round series but then also you know being the his role in in coronavirus becoming you know shutting down the nba and also being such a part of what trying to change the dynamics in the u.s like i mean gobert t- i mean touching all the microphones unfortunately and everything else like that but the the jazz ended up becoming this i mean you could speak to it far more because of the COVID daily news but i think that was exceedingly important yeah although in the end with uh as it turned out the data on fomite transition or, or uh <laughs> transmission is actually that it doesn't happen <laughs> very often <laughs> if at all so gobert was a was ahead of everyone to begin with apparently but yeah i mean that's that wednesday march 11th and just like the feeling of that gathering storm at the back of our minds and i had already decided that i just really wasn't gonna really be leaving my house until we saw what was happening and i had that game on i remember and seeing the the weird delay and then that nobody knew why and the dawning realization that it has to be something covid related but and just like refreshing twitter to find out what it was and then that it was that a jazz player had tested positive and then that it was gobert and mitchell and then that mitchell was angry at Gobert due to his carelessness and it, and as it turns out from what we know about COVID-19 whatever Gobert was supposedly doing that was careless was just like touching stuff or whatever like that's not clearly not how he transmitted it it was just due to having close contact and either airborne or droplet transmission which certainly none of the protocols in place at that time because you know nobody was wearing masks or doing anything like that at the time would have prevented transmission and just how much more we know about this now than we did then and how scary that was for those first couple of months and just to be we still have a long way to go with COVID but just to be thankful that the NBA was able to pull this off and like give us basketball and just for my own personal <laughs> being able to like still make a living talking about basketball it is pretty awesome uh and you know who I don't know what the future holds but at least you know the NBA is gonna have a season almost certainly next year and like uh, for you and me to at least have our lives go on like I'm really thankful for that that we're uh you know at least gonna have the lights on at our houses 
houses and we're going to be able to still uh, talk about basketball for well, a living. And even beyond that, and I'll echo all of that, having having a place to direct some of our mental energy that felt more natural. You know, like I, I know oh, you- Oh, dude. It, yeah. It, like that was, it, I remember like that was, there was a moment where I was, I was sitting in the apartment doing, I did a lot of that throughout the, the early months of this. And I just went, my brain all of a sudden switched into basketball mode. And I, and I, the next day, I think it was on a bike ride or something. And I just went, I was just so thankful. It was the, the idea that, okay, this is, this is where my mental energy can go. And instead of doom scrolling, instead of, you know, consuming all this, it's like, okay, it's going to be weird. We didn't know what, we didn't know what it was going to be, but it has made, uh, there were times, especially when there were seemingly infinite numbers of games per day, starting at like uh, Pacific time, 1030 in the morning and kind of feeling like you were going to go insane because you're, because we're missing a bunch because you can't watch everything all the time. Yeah. And, and we're doing, we're doing like a, a, uh, a league pass broadcast as well. Almost I mean, every day. Amazing to get that opportunity. I mean, that, that's, uh, something we could be really thankful for as well to just, uh, yeah. I mean, it felt great to just be able to lock in on, to care a lot about things that don't matter at all. It's kind of right. the way I, I put it, but like, that's what we need to do as humans. You can't spend every moment of every day freaking out that the world is going to end, even though, you know, we probably should have always been paying more attention to the weighty matters of our society than we did. But like, if you spend every second of every day doing that, like your mental health is just never going to recover. We can, we could kind of end this with the kind of a little bit of the fun of the, the lower lights of the 2019-20 NBA <laughs> season. And that has to start with beeline and slugs. I mean, holy crap. I mean, all this, uh, all this shit that happened. I mean, there's, there's that, which, and I mean, that he then, we wondered what would happen. I mean, what, what was that? Like December that that happened? I mean, and he, he got fired. Like they, the Cavs hired this guy out of college and were paying him like five million a year and he didn't even make it through the first season. I mean, that's just, John Beeline never, no one's ever going to talk about him anymore because of all the shit that's happened, but that's remarkable <laughs> that that happened. Yeah. So and, that was uh, in, that was in January and then he got fired in mid-February. Well, or, you know, mutually agreed to yeah. leave, which he may well have done. I mean, I think it made actually made sense for him to do that. But uh, how about uh, Steve Mills and Scott Perry having a press conference that James Dolan demanded them to have when the Knicks were two and eight, which uh, augured the firing of David Fisdale, of course. But uh, yeah, the Cavs, the Knicks, just a reminder that they're out there and they're not very good. I don't know where this fits in, but uh, I was reminded of this in the Ringers montage of things that Chris Paul swung a game against the Timberwolves by pointing out that Jordan Bell had his jersey untucked, and so that was a it was a second delay game on the Wolves, so it was a technical, and then the the Thunder ended up winning that game in overtime. Just just the wonderful ridiculousness that is Chris Paul, and I'm so happy that he was healthy this year because I've I've been a Chris Paul stand for basically ever, and to just see to see him put it together this year after being traded. By by the Houston Rockets was delightful. Even if not every moment of it was delightful because very few people know the know the BS the way that he does. The fall of the Golden State Warriors is also something that I will remember, particularly because I got to watch that team in person more times than I might have cared to. But Kevin, for, I mean, first off, Clay Thompson and, and Kevin Durant getting injured, which was technically last season. But then the sign and trade for Russell and Steph Curry breaking his hand right at the start of the year and the realization that this team that had just dominated back basketball is just going to have one of the biggest falls maybe the biggest one season fall that we've ever had I mean it's probably right up there with the Spurs the year that they tanked to get Tim Duncan in the lottery and obviously the Bulls from 98 to 99 but 
that was uh, to just have that team which had been the center of the basketball universe for five years just be completely irrelevant for a year was crazy and then you know this was over a year ago now but remember how the season started and it was uh certainly an ill portend but Gerald Morey's tweet of free Hong Kong and all the craziness behind that. And now there's news just in the last couple of days with game five is back on CCTV. The NBA hired the son of the founder of CCTV, the Chinese government TV to be its new head of operations in China. And things worked out. The Chinese government said that basically because the NBA behaves so well, they are back on it. They were still streaming on Tencent, by the way. But I mean, that was still, I thought, a pretty black eye for the league with the the caveat that the league did a better job of standing up to the Chinese government than basically any other American corporation has but still that they released a statement in Mandarin that was uh definitely way too conciliatory to the Chinese Communist Party and now that China has gotten what they wanted they basically uh, have made Hong Kong uh, from a, a civil rights standpoint is now part of mainland China which is a really negative development that with all the other stuff that's going on hasn't really gotten that much much attention the nba's sordid story in jinyang as well sorry i mispronounced that uh, but uh, of the nba academy and abuses that went on there that's also uh really disturbing and also of course ties in with uh the massive persecution of the uyghurs in china so that that's something that is always going to be part of this season when i think back on it as well but uh ultimately i'm just glad that we had basketball and i was uh, really glad to uh share this with you danny and with all of our listeners we started a whole new service here with dunked on prime as well which is uh taking us into the next era so uh it's just, uh we're looking forward to what's to come next even in uh, these uncertain times yeah and while you and i love having actual basketball games to talk about we also love having the off season to talk about and so there's going I mean, the timeline is going to be a little bit different we actually i'm actually pretty happy that we're going to have a little bit of a, a, a delay that's going to allow us to do more draft film if we want to it's also going to allow us to preview every off season so there's there's going to be plenty of dunked on content coming out and then we will of course once we know what the teams are going to look like we will start previewing the next season and by that point we'll probably know when the next season is going to start so there's still going to be a lot of content we thank all of you so much for being a part of this journey with us in whatever way you're supporting it and hopefully you can keep that hopefully we're giving you reason to keep on this journey with us moving forward yeah well said my friend and stay tuned here we did a Tyrese Halliburton scouting report for Dunked On Prime but we'll give that to you guys as a a little bit of a teaser still encourage you all of course if you haven't yet to sign up for Dunked On Prime give it a shot we got the mock-off season it'll probably be next month we got all this draft stuff uh, coming up uh, next month as well so great time uh, to sign up give it a shot for a a couple of months here you can always cancel it if you want to but this is maybe the best time the offseason coming up here to be a dunked on listener so enjoy uh this tyrese halliburton scouting report all right let's talk about tyrese halliburton here now and really interesting unique prospect one really liked by statistical translations i think uh kp's system had him second and his passing his rebounding from the guard spot it gets a lot of steals you know i think those are the things that the models really like uh what is his physical profile let's start with that so the best measurements that i could find uh hal burton six foot five 175 that is exceedingly skinny and there there are differing things on his wingspan but the draft express guys and i think sam vicini both have it around six seven and a half so six seven six eight something in that range you periodically 
hypothetically see something about a seven foot, but I don't. I didn't see that from anybody that I considered super reputable. I could be wrong, but that's just as I was kind of combing through it. And Halliburton just hasn't. Been, he has like a lot of these guys. He hasn't been measured in a while, though he has done some stuff. A, a little bit on the bio for Halliburton, I, I find his story fascinating. Like a lot of these guys, he was a three star recruit out of the state of Wisconsin, despite being the state player of the year his senior year of high school. Halliburton started his freshman year on a strong Iowa State team that included Taylor Horton Tucker, Marielle Shayok, and Lindell Wigington. That was a five seed and lost to Ohio State. Those other three guys left and Halliburton stayed. And he also, in the interim, was he was the a key player, leader in minutes per game on Team USA's gold medal team in FIBA U19, averaged eight points and seven assists on 69% shooting from the field in that you know, small sample size. And then for this year, his sophomore year, Halliburton, 15 points, six and a half assists, two and a half steals, six rebounds in 37 minutes per game, played 22 games in the hiatus shortened, or the, the COVID shortened season. Yeah, and a bit more on him statistically. A year ago, he was a really weird prospect. 9% usage rate uh, as a freshman, but went up to 20% this year. Still very, very low for a lead guard prospect. If you want to compare that to Lonzo Ball, his was 18% coming out of UCLA, although that UCLA team had a lot of other threats on it as well. Uh, but like Bryce Alford, for example, was, was devastating on that team. Uh, but Halliburton does have really strong steal and block rates. He's hit 43% of his three-pointers in college, which is a, a really good number. And so those are things that a lot of these projection systems really like. We'll finish up on his physical profile. I would say that he, you know, he definitely plays very thin. He has some of the same issues that you see with a lot of thin prospects, not really able to get down that deeply into a stance. He's not particularly physical as well, but that type, that body type oftentimes can get a lot more athletic with additional strength. Those are like your Brandon Ingrams, your Giannis Anacupos. Now those guys are a lot longer and bigger than Halliburton, but uh, you know, he's somewhat of a similar profile to, to Shea Gilgis Alexander, but, but not as big of a, of a wingspan, just to, from a purely physical standpoint. As a one-foot jumper, he's pretty good. You know, he can get up for some one-foot dunks pretty well. Two-foot jumper, not really as impressive to me. You know, pretty average explosiveness off of two feet. I would say, and the, I thought his change of direction was not really good. Um, you know, in a straight line, once he gets ahead of steam up, it can look pretty good, but I wouldn't characterize him as particularly quick on offense. Would you agree with that? I, I would. Should so I anything else that, yeah, anything else that stuck out to you just about like his physical tools? Well, I, I kind of want to do the advanced stats before we move on. Is that, is that fine? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's, so. let's hit that. 25.9 PER, 63% true shooting on the aforementioned 20 usage, uh, 35 assist percentage as basketball reference measures it, 3.8 steal percentage, 2 block percentage, uh, 2.3 assist to turnover, which was 4.5, I believe, his freshman year. But remember, his freshman year, super low usage. Um, Halliburton shot 82% on just 2.2 free throw attempts per 40 minutes. And he also, like that 37 minutes, remember, 37 minutes on in college, where they only play 40 in a regulation game. So you, yeah. there were a lot of games where he was playing the full 40. And also worth noting, and this is an interesting kind of piece of background here, is that Iowa State finished ninth in the Big 12. They were 12 and 20, 5 and 13 in the league year. And so, you know, Halliburton had this, and, and it's not all his fault. Like, I mean, when you watch the film, you could see the limitations. Yeah, of particularly because his, his season ended in late January. So it's 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 not all his fault. But right. they, they weren't doing too well before that. Either. Exactly, exactly. And so uh, I, I think that it, it is interesting 
interesting though that you, this idea, and I think I think this came up in in something that in the little write up that Schmitz had done about how you know like he didn't elevate the team, and that's not always the biggest problem. We've seen guys go number one who didn't do that, but it is it is kind of something I I thought about in the back of my mind. It wasn't the most important thing, but I wanted to mention it. Also, he's twenty years old and will turn twenty one on March first. And that broken left wrist ended his season. He went up for a, a shot block, chased down block and transition and fell really awkwardly on that left wrist. But interestingly, on December 28th, uh, he suffered a wrist injury in practice and was wearing a tight wrap and was interviewed saying, you know, he was in pain. He wasn't getting the rest that he needed to improve it. Uh, and so that's something to keep in mind as well, that basically for the last month of his season, he was kind of playing one-handed. Like it was, he doesn't have much of a left hand anyway, but it really fell apart for him. Uh, and he was very, very rarely doing anything with his left hand after that injury occurred. So as, as I looked at that film, I, had, I tried to characterize where he was in the year uh, for uh, some of the issues that he was having so uh, let's start with just a a big theme here well no actually let's wrap up with that instead so let's just start with where he is as an offensive player the number one thing obviously as a point guard prospect is the pick and roll what's he look like there not great i mean so that that would be the way i would describe it so if you if you want to go into the the synergy stats as a as shooting out of the pick and roll halliburton 0.637 points per possession that is 31st percentile and if you want to add in passes that goes up to 0.747 but because that improves for everybody that still keeps him in the 31st percentile and when you watch the film of halliburton in in the pick and roll i i think that you 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 see some of that and so for me it's that he that halliburton doesn't really get he doesn't really get by his guy very often he's not shaking guys he doesn't have a lot of shake in his game doesn't really have that blow by no push. he has one of the, he is one of the worst handles i can ever recall for right. uh, someone who's supposed to be a pure point guard prospect especially for a guy who's a sophomore yeah and emphasis there on the supposed to be I'll, I'll, i think we'll talk about that more later but uh so he like I, the way i would describe it is halliburton can't really create an advantage without a screen and he doesn't even create generally that good of one with one you know like, and and i was watching games so i watched the full game that he played against alabama which was in the battle for atlantis that was before that was in thanksgiving so before all the wrist stuff and then i also watched the game that they he only played against kansas one of the two times they played that last year and i watched that and he's just like those are those are pretty good teams i mean they have capable capable guard prospects on their roster and he's just not getting by like offensively he's not creating and remember i always talk about the idea of creating a good look for yourself or somebody else and as a as the ball handler tyrese halliburton in the half court did not do a ton of that so uh, i can hit you up with some more stats on that where yeah i mean he's not he's not a technician in pick and roll at all you know he's not doing the put guys in jail thing he's not maybe if the defense goes way under he might be able to shoot a three off the drill we'll talk more about his shooting but his mid-range game is pretty non-existent it's got okay floater game yeah some people have talked it up as being better that's not something that i see as being like a massive strength for him although in fairness to him you know he's not even really getting open for this floater right like his own man is always kind of there because he doesn't have the handle to set up the screen and yeah there's not as much space in college but i didn't think this iowa state team had like terrible spacing or anything like that like their their overall offensive profile i think was fine so 91 possessions that's all as the pick and roll ball hander and he played 22 games so that's basically uh, he's finishing four plays a game out of pick and roll and out of this is as the score out of those 
took a jumper off the dribble 34 times, took a floater 14 times, and got to the basket 12 times out of the 91 plays that he had in pick and roll. That is not very good at all and the jumper off the dribble those numbers were really ugly nine out of 33 off the dribble in pick and roll and then this is another stat that i thought was interesting very indicative of his mindset and i did think he showed this is probably where he showed the most growth from previous years is as a passer out of pick and roll i thought he was solid there a lot of people have talked about him as a great passer and i'm not sure i can quite get behind that but the numbers on that for example he finished 91 possessions shooting out of pick and roll or turning it over 308 overall possessions for the team out of pick and roll so he's passing the ball most of the time and we can shift now to what his pick and roll passing game looks like he does have the size to see over the defense he'll throw passes to shooters on the weak side but only going to his right and Part of this yeah. might have been the the left-handed issue, but he even before the injury, he almost never threw left-handed passes. He, he was very kind of James Harden right, except like uh, Harden like, but except as a right-handed player, where he can throw the pass right to left to the guy on the opposite side, but he can't throw that pass uh, left to right to that guy on the weak side. And then I thought finding the role man, he was solid. He liked to kind of do this pass where he would dribble the ball and then almost just tap it off the dribble uh, on a little bouncer to the role man and then the thing that i thought was most impressive about his passing was he would kind of go up off of one foot get in the air maybe a pretty close to floater range look guys off and then deliver the pass after you look guys off and he could kind of get in the air buy himself a little extra time force the defense to commit and then uh, find someone he didn't have that many turnovers either uh which for a guy who wasn't a huge threat to score you'll see those guys turn over a lot kind of like a rondo or a rubio and his turnover rate wasn't that terrible uh, compared to that so i think uh, uh he definitely was able to find guys pretty well but my concern at the nba level becomes if he's not really a threat to score like the best passers in the nba like luka Doncic or lebron part of why they're such good passers is they draw the defense to them and open up the passes and i don't have much confidence in halliburton to do that as a primary option right and the other way to to frame that is is this player going to put enough heat on the defense that they don't feel comfortable defending the pick and roll two on two and with Halliburton, my answer is a pretty firm no, starters versus starters. You know, maybe in some backup units you can get there. But he, you know, I, are you going to be terrified of your big, as long as it's not like a total flat foot, you know, dinosaur, big on Halliburton? No, not particularly. I, I think that you're not going to be freaked out there. And he has some size, but Halliburton doesn't use that particularly well. Like, it's not like his jump shot is has a super high release point or that he or anything like that, especially when it's coming off the dribble. So, so that's one part of it. But what I think is interesting about Halliburton as an offensive player is that while I have misgivings with him, and this is the listing as a point guard is, is really where this gets at, is when I watched Halliburton, I kept thinking about not current Nikhil Alexander-Walker, but back when I saw him in high school age around Adidas Nations, and it's this, the guy who has the ball in his hands a lot, but those skills could end up being more relevant when he's playing off ball, and then he's more in the two dribbles and a good decision type range, and incidentally, that's actually similar to Isaac Okoro, where I think that if he's more of a complementary ball 
and or roll and attacking when you have an advantage that part of Halliburton's game I really liked and then you can see like one of the one of the strongest part in his resume is in transition and in transition you have an advantage that advantage has been created circumstantially in many cases by Halliburton's own defense but when in those circumstances I think Halliburton does a good job he plays hard he pushes he's a little bit more he's patient he looked he's looking for things and so if you can make that the primary part of his offense by having him off the ball I think it actually works a lot better yeah a lot to chew on there you kind of hit on on a number of other aspects of his game and I do think for a number of reasons that Lonzo Ball is a, is a pretty interesting comparison for Halliburton um I, I just want to finish up a little bit on his individual offense sure. before we get into his his off-ball role um you know another problem with his passing is he doesn't get enough steam on his passes and you know as a skinny guy I don't think he has great core strength uh that can probably improve some but a lot of his passes are looping they don't you know they're not fastballs to the opposite side I also think that his lack of handle really hurts him as a passer because he's as a very slow dribble he's kind of the ball sticks in his hand each time it doesn't come out of his hand fast for his dribble he's not you know he doesn't have a lot of moves really off the dribble that's like the number of times that he actually faked someone out off the dribble were extremely limited oh i and, I, I want to talk about a play there but i'll save it yeah well well, no go ahead Let, okay let's hear so Hal Burton only had 19 isolation possessions where he scored. He actually only had 33 if you include passes. So that, that you know, or, 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 or where where he shot. Where he, he shot. Yes. Um. And and I so I watched all of those and I was you know the, that film on that was was gross. Like to be honest, like I thought that, that he wasn't getting by. And there was this one play I went completely insane at the at the, it was the end of the first half of their game at Texas. They you know the isolation came as it often does by a big switching onto a small and Hal Burton tried a bunch of moves did it you know was, was was trying to trying to get something couldn't create any separation then just threw up some crap around the free throw line it's just like okay like he's just he it was and i don't think that texas pick i don't know exactly who it was but it's not somebody who was on my radar as like being a particularly good defender and it's just that when the player can lock in like Halliburton just he just doesn't really have enough to get by somebody even when he has physical advantages and so you could see that i actually saw that more in the iso film limited as it was compared to the uh, pick and roll film I mean, even when he does have the physical advantage, although I'm not sure what those advantages are at this point, too, uh, since he's not very quick changing direction. Um, but, you know, part of the reason that his lack of a handle is such of an issue, number one, is, you know, he doesn't really have any kind of start and stop hesitation game, no real crossover game. And he's not even like, you know, going between the legs and trying to get by guys. Um so that's an issue. And then because the ball is just not rebounding to, back to his hand quickly enough, passing windows will be there. And then by the time he actually gets the ball back in his hand again, they'll be closed. And sometimes some of his turnovers, he would throw it, but he'd throw it way late because he'd see it, but the ball wasn't in his hand to actually throw the pass yet. And then by the time it did get back there, he'd throw it and it would be gone. So like handle is actually a really big part of being a good passer on the move for that reason. And yeah, I mean, then you can throw in his jump shot off the dribble as well, which he'll shoot a set shot from outside, even off the dribble uh, from outside the three-point line. But once he gets inside the arc, he'll pull up for a jumper, and it really doesn't look smooth. He kind of shoots it on the way down. He's also shooting it way out in front of his face, which, and I think that he could get better at this, particularly with like his, the way he shoots the ball from the outside and his free throw shooting. Uh, but as of right now, you know, that's not a weapon for him creating space off the dribble. And he's going to need to be able to do that because you, I, I mean, I think there's just about nobody in the NBA 
that I think would struggle to guard him in an isolation. Right. And at this so point. Halliburton attempted 57 shots off the dribble his sophomore year, made 16 of those. That's 28% field goal, about 0.7 points per possession, which is is not great. And so you, that kind of ties a lot of those, those misgivings together. Um, so then I think there are kind of two other big elements about Halliburton's offense that I think we need to discuss. One is transition, yeah. and then the other is his catch-and-shoot jump shot. I'll let you choose which one we need to go to next. Yeah, I mean, the catch-and-shoot jump shot is what gives me the most optimism for him offensively. Which and is funny because he, the mechanics are weird. They are. I mean, he, he definitely shoots at such a, but he shoots it very quickly. Yes, he does. And And he also can shoot it from way out. And I think, you know, he's going to have no problem adapting to the NBA three-point line. He's taken some pretty difficult threes at times, too, and to still shoot 43% for his career. Even, even again, with him sort of shooting a set shot, you wouldn't expect this, but he could even shoot some coming off of screens. Uh, and, you know, again, if anyone's close to him, he was going to get that thing blocked, but he can get it off quickly enough. Like, he's, I think he could eventually have some gravity if a team wanted to use him in that way. Um, and I definitely think as just an open guy who could spot up pretty deep when he's off the ball, like that's that's the one thing that, uh, you know, I have fewer concerns about his shooting than a Rubio type, for example. Um, Lonzo Ball, we probably overrated his shooting coming out and he's had to do a lot of surgery on his jump. But I think Halliburton could do a little of that. But Halliburton is, I think, I have a lot of confidence in his ability to hit shots at the NBA level and potentially increase that volume. Is that how you see it as well? Yeah, probably speaking. I, I think that it's also helped by 70, 78% as a free throw shooter. Again, the volume of free throw attempts isn't great, but that is a different question that we already kind of discussed. But he seems like capable. His his form is weird, but it does seem consistent. And the as you said, the release is pretty fast. So yeah, the surgery is not nearly as necessary. And so yeah, I, I think that the... So the funniest thing to me about Halliburton... Uh, no, I'll, I'll save that. That's a big picture thought. I'll get in there. Okay, so yeah. So I think that there is a lot that's positive. And then if you think about, and I was already getting to this before in my long little missive, was the idea that his game fits a lot better when he's off the ball because then, you know, like, so if a guy closes, if somebody closes out to Halliburton hard, then he can dribble in. He's going to have some sort of advantage. He can find a passer. Hopefully he can make that pass with his right hand. Or he can, you know, maybe he maybe he'll just take a, I'm sure he'll get the footwork for doing like a step over and set shot three. I don't think that's going to take him too long necessarily. So I, I think that the game works there and that's where the, the transition fits in. And so I thought this was like, in a lot of ways, both in terms of the highlights, but also in terms of just the statistics was one of the real strong points for Halliburton as a transition scorer. 1.39 points per possession. That is 93rd percentile. Absolutely excellent. And if you want to add in passes, assists, 1.77 points per possession. That's 99th percentile. And he had some real beauties passing in transition because he like he had the space to make those. And so it was like, you know, getting the defender and throwing like a nice little wraparound or doing something like that. He Halberton doesn't have a ton of passes in his toolbox, but he can use them so much better in transition. And that's what makes me encouraged about him doing it more off ball or maybe eventually developing a little more on ball. He definitely was the point guard for Iowa State. You know, he, he was the guy who brought the ball up on most possessions. I don't think of, again, I kind of think of him as more of a Lonzo Ball type in transition because despite his 6'7 frame, you know, he's not doing it as a terror attacking the basket where you're like, oh man, we better get back. This guy's going to push right. the ball down our throats, right? It's not that type of a game. And, you know, he'll do some nice hit ahead passes. He's just, he's not that fast with the ball in his hands though, uh, again, 
And I don't necessarily think that he's going to be one of these guys like Lonzo or the way Trey Young is in college, who it's like, oh, you put this guy on your team as your point guard. And now all of a sudden you're a running team, right? Like he is going to, I don't think he's that type of a transition force where you're like, oh, he's going to really increase our pace on his own. I think he could be capable in transition, but you know, I wasn't like blown away by him. I I personally think that aspect of it is a little bit overrated. Not that you're, you were blown away either, but that's something that people talk about. And well, and I think another big big part of that is the transition from the big 12 to the NBA is that there aren't that many NBA caliber athletes in any particular conference, especially, you know, I, I, and I was watching some of his best competition. It was like, okay, you know, like he, he looks pretty fast compared to these guys, but you and I spend a lot of time watching NBA film. And Hal Burton is 20, but he's not like, you know, it doesn't seem like there's, you know, this ridiculous amount of untapped, untapped physical potential for him. Like, oh, he's going to get way faster or something like that. So, yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think there's some usually skinny guys. That sure, there's, there's some, there's some um, to be sure. But, but, and, yeah. and I, one of the notes while we're kind but, of, but he's 20, he's not 18. Exactly. And one of the other elements of Hal Burton's offensive game that I do like is the energy that he plays with. And this is different than speed, but like, you know, like when he's off ball, he's running around a lot he's the some iowa state's offense had some had some pretty solid motion within it and so again i think that the 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 building blocks are there for him to be a productive offensive player even if he's not doing it in the same role that he had at iowa state and i i so it's it's interesting but then what and this is this is kind kind of can be a transition into defense to an extent is well well, not 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 yet if if you're because there's another big thing we have to talk about still and that's his finishing sure 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 well um yeah let's do that and then i'll bring up my point Uh, so and again in transition i I was not really impressed by his finishing yes if he's going in a straight line he can kind of get up off of one foot for a right-handed dunk but other than that i was not impressed by his finishing package again with the caveat that he had this issue with the left hand for about a month I did not see him take a single shot around the basket with his left hand. Uh, the one move that I ever really saw him do, uh, his Eurostep game is very undeveloped. Um, you know, he just doesn't really, he's not really able to slow down and change speeds. He didn't really, the couple of times he tried, I think he picked up a charge on one of them. Um, you know, so, so that really hurts his transition attack value as well. The one move that he had was kind of like a fake Eurostep where he would actually just stay on the right side and pretty much all of his attacks going to the rim are right hand on the right side, jumping off his left foot. You know, there's no same hand, same foot finishes. There's not like a, a ton of double pump stuff. Like he could do like a double pump with two hands on the ball every once in a while to like maybe avoid one shot blocker who is flying at him out of control. But any type of a play versus anyone who's in position, you know, he wasn't even necessarily trying it. And if he did, it wasn't great. And then, you know, he doesn't have any kind of really foul drawing game either. He's not going into guys and getting contact. And so he's not able to get to the basket. And when he does get to the basket, it it doesn't look that good. And so in 22 games, he shot 38 shots around the basket in the half court and probably at least... 15 or 20 of those were off of these offensive rebounds that he likes to get where he'll fly in off of one foot and either get a tip dunk or or a tap which is probably not going to be part of his game your point guard doing that at the nba level because the transition defense is so important and they're just much better athletes he's not being able to just go over the top of the people at the nba level as an offensive rebounder that often so i mean we're talking about at best one shot per game in the half court at the rim and you know not in any type of a contested finish he's not shooting great again the floater game i think is something that could be 
an acceptable weapon for him not you know he's not gonna be a trey young type of floater shooter necessarily but his finishing package to me it was extremely undeveloped yeah i i agree with you and and undeveloped skinny guys it can often also be hard for them to get you know they can get better but i think it's it would be a lot of work for him to get the the kind of the full the full finishing package there and remember halliburton you talked about how few half court finishes he had around the rim he had the ball in his hands a lot so it isn't a circumstance of a lack of opportunity, though you could argue that he hurt his opportunities there by virtue of not being able to get to the basket enough. I mean, you could see that with the, some of the pick and roll stuff we talked about before. And so we've brought up a few different players and one that a name that we have not invoked yet, but one that gave me some cold sweats for those who remember how I felt about him was Dante Exum. And Exum was coming out of functionally high school basketball in Australia. And I thought that Exum's athleticism to me offensively popped more than Halliburton's, but you know, Halliburton's. Yeah. Yeah. Because Dante Exum is in a straight line, at least when he started was like one of the fastest guys in the NBA. And Halliburton is, you know, he'll be okay in that area, but not amazing. But so what I got wrong with Dante Exum, and maybe this will be an overcorrection with Halliburton and guys of his ilk, is I had this idea that it's like, oh, okay, even if the primary ball handler, pick and roll, maestro, part of his game doesn't, if it doesn't come to fruition, well, you could still be, you could still make it work with him doing something else. This is a problem I got into with Frank Nokina as well, especially when I like those guys defensively, which I do with, with Tyrese Halliburton as well. But the problem is, yes, that idea of Halliburton is viable and there aren't a ton of two guards in the league. Like that's one of the more scarce positions. It's kind of underrated. We talk about wings, but there aren't that many good twos either, but it's just also not that valuable. And that's what I had to keep cautioning myself with, with Halliburton is I can see this path. I can see this path to him being an off ball guy. I think of him. I know that he was a point guard at Iowa State. I think he offensively is, a, is an off ball guy. I think that's what he is in, at the NBA level, probably on both ends. We'll talk about that defensively later. And so then I was like, oh, well, it works. And that's why I'm encouraged by it. But then I'm like, well, yeah, it works, but it's not that player isn't moving the needle that much for you unless they're really, really good at that, which Halliburton could be, but something you and I discuss a lot with three and D guys and not saying Halliburton has to be that is the three has to really work because otherwise they're just not that viable. Do you want to talk about that defense now? Yeah, let's get there. So the stats are good, the block and steal rates, and you know he does have active hands. I think he's active in the passing lanes, and I think he tries pretty hard. I think he's got solid, if not amazing, help instincts. You know, as he he's not necessarily like getting his nose in there and helping out on like guys rolling to the basket as much that type of thing. But you know, he'll move. I thought, particularly considering his minutes load and how much he dribbled the ball offensively. His activity level is definitely above average for a, a college point guard. I thought his closeouts are pretty decent. You know, he's got some pretty good anticipation. He'll do stuff like, oh, and the guy picks up his dribble out of pick and roll. He'll get his arms up and jump to deflect the obvious pass or, or deter the obvious pass. Like his activity level was definitely solid, I thought. Um, what did you think of him? Uh, anything you understand his help defense? Or you're going to talk about him as an on-ball guy. On his help defense, I was impressed in the in the Kansas game with Halliburton's threat assessment. You know, like that there were Kansas is a team that has way more talent than Iowa State, so there was a lot of threat assessing to do. But I thought that Halliburton did a nice job. There was this possession that I I, I really loved where he helped on a post up, but stayed close enough to his to his cover to basically when that when the post up passed out to his guy, he didn't 
concede a good shot. I really like it when a player can do that. And it's a little bit easier in college because the three-point line is closer, though we're dealing with the new college line, not the old college line, which is nice for a lot of evaluation purposes. Um, and he gets some good deflections. He had some really nice ones in, that, in the early part of that Kansas game when, when Iowa State stayed close and they got their asses kicked, but Kansas is a better team. So I thought that he did a good job of understanding who on the other team was good, understanding how how connected he had to be with his own player. And that shows a level of understanding that I really like. You know, that can often be somebody who then, at the professional level, executes the scouting report, actually knows this guy likes going left, this guy likes going right, that kind of stuff. Like, it seems like Halliburton has the mental acuity to, and, and takes enough care to be that type of player in the NBA. Not that it's a certainty, but you could see some of that thought in the way he played. Yeah, and I also think uh, he did a good job of communicating as well. You could see that he was one of their more active defensive communicators. On ball, though, I'm less impressed by him. I think he's probably going to be better on smaller guys. And in an isolation, just due to his length, he can hold up pretty well and usually would get a pretty good contest on smaller guards, uh, although isolations at the college level are generally nowhere near as efficient as they are at the NBA level. And But his numbers there were relatively good. Uh, I do think, though, his, his lack of change of direction is a problem. I think that quick guards are going to be able to blow by him or, you know, let's say he's trying to force a guy away from the pick and roll. You know, you could see guys reject the screen on him and blow right by him. I think that's something that would happen. You know, they didn't do a ton of stuff where he really had to get into the ball. I don't think he's capable, really, of pressuring the ball and in the nba you have to play close to guys you, you can't back way off because then you're just gonna get sledgehammered by the screen you gotta get skinny over those screens and that's another thing i don't think he's particularly good at he like a lot of skinny guys he struggles to get low in a stance and then the higher you are in your stance the harder it is to change direction because your center of gravity is higher and i saw him get wrong footed a number of times uh, on defense as well as on offense where he, you know he can't really change direction with a crossover very well or anything like that and so getting over screens he wasn't amazing at now he was solid as a rear view contest guy yeah and he did a good job kind of staying away from guys not letting them get into his body using his length to contest and so if he gets picked off you know he can continue to compete and be part of it you know i think he does have some pretty good defensive potential but my other concern with him is yeah you know he's six five you're like oh yeah six five point guard like now we can switch stuff nope i mean no no, no. I, I mean he's gonna he's gonna be too thin well, to guard really any kind of a power wing. and halliburton is is the form of skinny that you can't really make thick you know like he's yeah. just he yeah just yeah i mean shea gilgis alexander is yeah. is the body type I yeah think. shea gilgis alexander and and on the reviews that i you know you got little inklings of matisse thibel but not nearly the volume like thibel's the aggressiveness that he does yeah. that is and, and thibel's way bigger than him oh yeah too. Uh, absolutely and so what i the interesting question that i started getting into and you you brought up the change of direction thing was was what i what i fixated on for halliburton defensively and i started getting into the idea that i think he'd be better you know he would have problems with some twos but just getting him out of you know if, if his job is chasing around a guy you know like you could you, there are various examples of this that we're seeing in the finals and everything else like i think halliburton could be could be better at that 
than navigating a screen. And like you could think part of the reason why Marcus Smart is so good getting through screens is that he's strong enough to be able to assert too. He doesn't get hung in the same way that a lot of other that that some smaller guys do. And I think that Halliburton might end up being like that. This, so this is my kind of like bigger idea is that I think he might be better offensively off ball and defensively on twos rather than ones. But you run into the problem that he's a two that then you really can't slide up into the three four. You don't really want him to switch. And there are now, especially, there are two guards that are way stronger than him. And so maybe Halliburton can deal with that. Maybe you can give him some tools later on. Like, I was thinking about, like, okay, how's he going to defend Bradley Beal? How's he going to defend Jalen Brown? Because there are a lot of teams that don't play a two. They just play an extra three. And... It's an interesting idea, though, because I I was thinking about that, and that's part of the fun for us of watching these prospects so separately, is I started thinking of him as defending twos rather than ones, and I wanted to see how you felt about it. Yeah, well, that's uh, as we get into it here, and, and real quickly before we kind of talk about his overall role and fit, you know, defensive rebounding got a lot better this year, 13% defensive rebounds. You know, I didn't think of him as a massive you know, for his size, I was uh, kind of hoping for, particularly in that Kansas game, they were getting completely bludgeoned oh, God. on the offensive glass in the first half. And, you know, he wasn't like flying in there to try and get rebounds. You know, I, I mean, that's that's really, you know, I think he's he's got some size, the ball bounce and he played a lot of minutes as well. 13% defensive rebounds, like that's fine. Uh, but in terms of just like real value added rebounds where he's coming in and, and making plays, on the defensive glass, I didn't see that as much as we did on the offensive end where he had a, a little over 4% offense rebound. It was pretty good for a guard. But yeah, getting back to your point there. All right, so on offense, he's got to play off the ball. Uh, you know, he, maybe he could bring the ball up, but he's not going to be your primary pick and roll threat. Now, so that means your team has to have another primary pick and roll threat on the perimeter. Well, that guy doesn't want to guard the best the point guard on the other team like he's he's your biggest offensive player but you know is Halliburton going to be great guarding the other team's point guard like I I don't think so right I mean if you again if you compare him to Lonzo I think Lonzo to me looks like a better defender than him both in terms of his instincts and then just his overall speed Lonzo has a better frame as well they're pretty similar measurements from a physical standpoint you know maybe you could say that uh Halliburton gets his hands on a few more balls like in the passing lanes than Lonzo but Lonzo is kind of quicker at breaking on the ball uh, um so if Halliburton's not going to really be a plus guarding the other team's primary pick and roll threat if it's a smaller guy then it's like well how are you putting your team together now you have a you need to have a third guy who's going to guard that guy but then that guy also has to be able to guard power wings at the same time it's it becomes just a little bit harder to put your team together you know compared to i mean a lot of people would say oh he's like kind of that george hill patrick beverly type of point guard you can play off the ball on offense but yeah i'm not sure that he's that level of an on-ball defender right as and, those and guys think about how everybody worse than those guys doesn't start and some of those yeah. guys don't either and and that's the real crux of of some of the challenges for Therese Halliburton and the last guy who I haven't invoked who I thought of a fair amount while watching Halliburton's film was DeLon Wright somebody that you and I both like and DeLon Wright clearly has a place in the league and but it's very difficult to start him because doesn't really create that reliably for himself and others he's a a good defender I would say that 
that, in, to my eyes, Wright is sometimes more of a shark than Halliburton. It depends. I mean, we'll see where Halliburton's game goes. Yeah, but- Wright, I, I wouldn't say that, like, Halliburton has, like, great hands for, like, picking guys off the dribble or stripping guys. You know, it's more just, like, in the if lanes. you throw a pass near him, he'll get a hand on it. Right. That's that though he gets more of those kind of steals. But but so if like it wouldn't stun me at all if Halliburton ends up having a similar overall profile. And so DeLon Wright, you know, played 73 games for the Mavericks this year. He's started five of those, but he was an important part of the rotation. Like that would not be a fail. It would not be a failure to me for Halliburton, but it would be significantly lower than what other people think he might be. Yeah, and I think uh, now the shooting is the one thing that's different about that, but Daylon Wright is a wonderful finisher, and uh, you know, as you mentioned, I think he's a better on-ball defender than Halliburton is. So ultimately what you're getting into here, if you want to classify him as a point guard, if you look at the profile of guys who have a similar skill set to what he's doing, you know, really you're topping out, even if everything goes absolutely as well as it possibly could with him, you're topping out to me at like, you know, the 17th best point guard in the league, the 22nd best point guard in the league, you know, a guy who maybe is a starter, you know, I think right along what we kind of thought Daylon Wright was until he had this disastrous year in Dallas, that's, they have somewhat different games, you know, or someone like Rubio would maybe, but, but Rubio is a much better passer to me than Tyrese Halliburton and a much better pick and roll player. You know, you don't see the like Nash under the basket stuff from Halliburton or that you, you did from Rubio like Rubio is an operator and Halliburton you know is what not about, that and Rubio is also a much tougher defender to me than Halliburton is and it's it's interesting we haven't brought up Fred Van Vliet yet and I think Van Vliet is a much stronger player physically but if we're talking about like the overall offensive role yeah. but, well Fred Van Vliet is a way better pick and roll player yeah that's I, true. I think and no, maybe, like, maybe Halliburton can become that right but, that's what I'm saying is like uh, maybe like the idea of that like to me Fred Van Vliet's overall level of value is how Halliburton gets to that level and I'm thinking that's closer to best case scenario i'm also just really worried that he can't dribble like like he's not even gonna he's gonna struggle to bring the ball up against a normal nba point guard who wants to pressure up against him like it's and you know fred van vliet is say what you will about him but he's always been able to dribble the ball and yeah you know guys can develop in interesting ways right like i think he could get a lot more athletic i think he can use the shooting to really leverage things a a lot you know he seems like a high character guy a a worker so i don't want to just say for sure that he's not going to be able to develop some of these weaknesses but in terms of like his finishing at the rim his dribbling his pick and roll game is off the dribble game i mean it seems much more likely than not that he's not going to be a major pick and roll threat in the nba and if you're a point guard who's not a major pick and roll threat there's only so high in the hierarchy that you can rise and when we're talking about a guy as you know potentially a top five pick probably more likely in the top 10 i mean i think lower end of the top 10 we haven't seen everybody else yet but you know i'd start to become more comfortable with just this player type with an understanding of like okay we'll draft someone who you know because i think he's gonna have a, a long nba career i think he's gonna be solid um but i don't think that he has any kind of star potential whatsoever and if you're drafting a point guard without star potential or even someone who could be a primary pick and roll threat really tough to take that guy in the top 10 but you know everything's relative and this is not a, a great draft one other one other point here and, and this is also why we we need for measurements on this i think it's interesting that isaac coro also measured six foot five without shoes but he's 225 pounds and that difference makes a coro more versatile as a defensive player than halliburton probably yeah. will ever I, I, I would have a coro higher than so halliburton I. I, I could tell you that right now yeah 
yeah, like there, I could see Halliburton being better, but because of that size and the defensive versatility that gives Okoro, even though Halliburton, I trust his shot dramatically more. I don't think either one of them is going to be like that pick and roll threat. So then it becomes kind of how how likely are they to be a a logical complementary guy? And I like Okoro's defensive tools better than Halliburton's, and that overrides the shooting advantage that I give to Halliburton. Yeah, I mean, there's just much less of a potential plug-and-play element. I think the upside is much higher for Okoro as well at a more valuable position. Um, anything else you want to talk about with him? Oh, he did do a pass fake into a three, so that made me very happy. Um, <laughs> oh, oh, that was something that I thought was interesting with Halliburton. So I watched, I, m- I mentioned that Alabama game in the battle for Atlantis. And Bryce Petty, it was originally Halliburton was guarding him, though he eventually went on, I believe his name is Kyra Lewis, who is another, uh, like a late first round pick potentially. That's why part of why I watched that game. And it was interesting that, so three of the first four three-pointers, Alabama made four really early threes, were with Halliburton guarding that guy. And I don't know if it's that he's so skinny or whatever it is. Like, they just didn't seem that bothered by his contest. I don't know. Petty and Lewis's games well enough to know if they're just that level of confident shooters or if they were just going in. But it was interesting. That was something as I kept on watching the film was like he was doing, you know, Halburn's closeouts weren't terrible, but it wasn't necessarily affecting guys as much as I thought it might. Like that's that's a difference between him and let's say Thibel, where Thibel's like out there and Halburn's he's there, but he's not quite shaping everything as much. All right, well, that can do it for today. We'll be back tomorrow to talk about game five of the 2020 NBA Finals. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.